Tune Review, Print Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at Tune Review, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at tunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot C-O-M or by calling 0141 772 That's 0141 772 This is from The National on Friday the 27th of January from the news section. Concern for Scottish shipyards over offshoring of warship contracts. This is written by Lucy Garcia. This is from The National on Friday the 27th of January from the news section. Concern for Scottish shipyards over offshoring of warship contracts. This is written by Lucy Garcia. Scottish shipyards need greater clarity from the UK government over where contracts for new naval vessels will be placed in the coming decades, MPs have said. Members of the Scottish Affairs Committee made the plea as they challenged ministers to set out why a recent £1.6 billion contract for the construction of three naval support ships had gone to an international consortium, which will see some of the building work take place in Spain. MPs are demanding to know whether the successful bid from Team Resolute Consortium was the cheapest. That deal will see some of the construction work being carried out at the Navantia shipyard in Cadiz, with MPs describing the contract award as an example of a shift in the UK government's approach to warship procurement. In a new report on military shipbuilding, the MPs insisted more jobs in the UK and Scotland in particular would have been supported if ministers had opted for an alternative bid from UK firms. The UK government's decision appears to prioritise short-term savings over longer-term economic gains for Scotland and the rest of the UK, the committee said. Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has previously said that awarding the contract to Team Resolute would be a significant boost to the UK's historic shipbuilding industry, with work to be done at the Harland and Wolfe Yards in Belfast and at Appledore in Devon. MPs on the Scottish Affairs Committee, however, stressed the need for Westminster to give Scottish shipbuilders the confidence to continue to invest in the future. Their report, published after an inquiry into military shipbuilding north of the border, highlighted the importance to Scottish shipyards of maintaining a dependable drumbeat of orders to allow them to invest and grow. The Ministry of Defence spent £1.11 billion on shipbuilding in Scotland in 2021, supporting some 7,700 jobs in the industry. While the MPs said the days of feast and famine must not return for Scottish yards, 
they added that there remains some uncertainty about the pipeline in the 2030s and 2040s. Their report said, The Scottish shipbuilding industry should not be given cause to doubt that it will have a consistent order book in the future, so long as it continues to deliver on its commitments to its government customers. A shift in approach from the UK government means it is no longer the default position that warships will be designed and built fully in the UK, the committee said, adding that this is of concern to some in the Scottish military shipbuilding sector. It follows speculation that the multi-billion pound contract for five new Type 32 frigates for the Navy at the Rosyth Dockyard in Fife could be axed. In the wake of that, the committee challenged the UK government to confirm whether the Ministry of Defence still intends to order the Type 32 frigates as set out in the National Shipbuilding Strategy refresh. Speaking as the report was published, Committee Chairman Pete Wishart said, Military shipbuilding is a major Scottish success story. From Rosyth to Glasgow, we have military shipbuilding hubs that boost local economies and invest in skills and training. He hailed a recent announcement that Type 26 frigates are to be built by BAE Systems in Glasgow as being a major vote of confidence in the Scottish shipbuilding sector. But the SNP MP added, UK government policy on military shipbuilding ebbs and flows. On the one hand, ministers are championing the skills and expertise the military shipbuilding sector thrives on in Scotland. But, on the other, its policies have opened up the offshoring of warship production to other countries. The government cannot have this both ways. A thriving shipbuilding sector is dependent on the drumbeat of orders. We have the skills and expertise here, in Scotland, to support our future military shipbuilding needs, so it is unclear what benefit is to be had by opening up procurement to international competition. We hope the UK government carefully considers our findings and recommendations and, in turn, offer some certainty to the military shipbuilding sector in Scotland that its prominence in designing and building warships is here to stay. That was written by Lucy Garcia. This is from The National on Friday the 27th of January from the News section. Glasgow Council nets £21 million in bid to boost recycling rates. This is written by Alex Evers. Scotland's largest council has been awarded more than £21 million to help boost recycling rates. In the largest award from the fund to date, the Scottish Government's Recycling Improvement Fund will offer Glasgow City Council the money to help fund separate collections. This includes a new twin stream service which will see paper and cardboard collected separately from metals, plastics and cartons. Glasgow City Council has also committed £20 million from its own budget to develop a new facility to process the waste collected, with local authority leaders saying that this should see more materials processed for future use rather than being thrown away. Circular Economy Minister Lorna Slater announced the funding on a visit to the city's recycling centre at Blockcharn.
she said, by investing more than £21 million towards improving facilities in Glasgow, we will help make it easier for households to recycle and increase local recycling rates. With Glasgow being Scotland's biggest local authority area, it will also make an important contribution to the national recycling picture. It comes as part of what she described as a big year for recycling, with Scotland's deposit return scheme being introduced in August. She said ministers will also publish an ambitious circular economy bill, adding, These actions will boost recycling across the country and make a major contribution to the fight against the climate crisis. Rory Kelly, Glasgow City Council's convener for neighbourhood services and assets, said the boost is great news for Glasgow and a huge vote of confidence in our plans for recycling in the city. He added, the funding will help us build a new recycling facility that ensures material from household recycling bins is sorted much more effectively. We will also invest in an expanded recycling service for curbside collections. These measures will ensure more of Glasgow's waste goes on to be recycled, which is good for Glasgow's recycling rates, but also for sustainability in Scotland. This was written by Alex Evers. This is from The National on Friday the 27th of January from the Politics section. Rod Stewart calls Sky News live to demand end of Tory government. This is written by Steph Braun. Rod Stewart has insisted the Tory government should stand down after insisting that he had never seen the NHS in a worse state. The 78-year-old singer-songwriter told Sky News he would pay for 10 or 20 hospital scans after patients spoke about experiencing long waiting lists in the NHS. He phoned into the broadcaster's Your Say segment, which covered people sharing their experience of healthcare in an unscheduled appearance. Stewart said that he had attended a private clinic on Thursday that was basically empty and was prompted to call into the show after hearing about the ridiculous situation in the NHS. There are people dying because they cannot get scans, he said. In all my years in this country, I've never seen it so bad. Change the bloody government. On NHS workers calling for better pay, he said they were not asking for a great deal before going on to urge the Tory government to stand down now and give the Labour Party a go. This was written by Steph Braun. This is from The National on Friday the 27th of January from the News section. SBH Scotland Burns Night event raises £50,000 for charity. This is written by Jane MacLeod. One of Scotland's biggest burn suppers has raised £50,000 for charity. Nearly 500 guests gathered at the Glasgow Hilton Hotel for the Spina Bifida Hydrocephalus Scotland's SBH Scotland 31st event. Former Scottish international rugby player and sports presenter Andy Nicholl hosted the evening, which saw guests enjoy renditions of Burns' famous poems, a three-course meal, auction and a quiz on all things Rabbi Burns. Other notable faces in attendance included Kevin Brown, who delivered an address to the Haggis, 
legendary comedian Fred Macaulay, who gave the toast to the lasses, and Scottish singer Michelle McManus, who delivered a hilarious reply. Scotland's foremost Robert Burns reenactor, Chris Tate, delivered the immortal memory and award-winning classical singer and SBH Scotland ambassador, Nicola Cassells, concluded the evening with a performance of Old Lang Syne. For over three decades, SBH Scotland's annual evening in honour of the Ayrshire-born poet has been one of Glasgow's most successful Burns Supper events. Since its launch in 1981, the event has raised over £1 million, which has been used to provide personalised support to thousands of children, young people and adults across Scotland affected by the lifelong complex conditions of spina bifida and or hydrocephalus. To support the drive, luxury jeweller Chisholm Hunter donated a diamond pendant worth £2,000 for the diamond draw, as well as Hugo Boss watches for each member of the winning quiz team. Chairperson of SBH Scotland, Dr Margot Whiteford said, Without the generosity from everyone who attended, we wouldn't be able to provide specialist services to the 4,000 children, young people and their families who live with spina bifida and ors hydrocephalus in Scotland. Because of our guests, speakers, volunteers and sponsors, we have certainly kicked off 2023 in a spectacular way. That was written by Jane MacLeod. This is from The National on Friday the 27th of January from the news section. Scotland set for supersized poundland amid expansion plans. This is written by Gregor Young. Retailer Poundland has unveiled plans to open and relocate at least 50 new stores over the next nine months in a move set to create up to 800 jobs. The plans will see the biggest Poundland opened in Scotland, a supersized 18,380 square foot store on Glasgow's Crown Street, set to launch in March. The chain said that around half of the planned store changes would be new openings in cities, while the remainder would be relocations from smaller and outdated sites, or extensions to existing shops. Around 750 to 800 jobs will be created on a net basis, according to Poundland, as part of the store overhaul programme. Managing Director Barry Williams said, We will continue to work hard to find the right locations that suit the range of Poundland formats we now offer, from neighbourhood convenience stores to our large destination stores. This is written by Gregor Young. This is from The National on Monday the 30th of January 2023. This is from the news section. The headline is, Former Edinburgh teacher accused of abuse arrested in South Africa. This article is by Hamish Morrison. Former teacher accused by BBC presenter Nicky Campbell of molesting pupils has reportedly been arrested in South Africa. The man, known by the pseudonym Edgar, attended a sexual offences office near Clement Police Station in Cape Town on Monday morning and is due to appear in court at a later date, the BBC reported. Edgar taught at elite private school Edinburgh Academy and Fetis College in the 1960s and 1970s. And Campbell, a presenter on BBC Five Live, said last year he had seen his former teacher molesting a fellow pupil 
while at school. The man in question moved to South Africa after living in Scotland and the BBC reports the man claimed he did not molest anyone during his time teaching at a prestigious boys' school in Cape Town. South Africa approved a UK extradition request for the man in 2020, but removing the 83-year-old has repeatedly been delayed. The Mirror, which first broke the story, reported that Edgar retired from teaching 10 years ago and now lives in a retirement complex in Cape Town. Campbell is one of a number of former Edinburgh Academy pupils who have made accusations against the man. That article was by Hamish Morrison. This is from The National on Monday the 30th of January 2023. This is from the news section. The headline is The Who announced first Scottish tour day in four decades. This article is by Lucy Garcia. The Who have announced their first Scottish gig day in four decades as they embark on a UK-wide tour. The legendary rock band will be performing each night with a full orchestra, with two days confirmed at Edinburgh Castle on July the 8th and the 9th this year. Pete Townsend, Roger Daltrey and the band will be performing music from throughout their nearly 60-year career at nine different gig dates across the UK. The set will include sections devoted to classic albums Tommy and Quadrophenia, as well as other beloved Who tracks and songs from their 2019 album, their first studio release in 13 years. The 2023 tour will include a show in the Scottish capital, their first in over 40 years, as well as their first show in Derby since 1966. It's understood that UB40 featuring Ali Campbell will be the special guest on most of the tour dates, but the Edinburgh date support has not yet been announced, so a surprise could be in store for fans. The gig follows last year's highly acclaimed The Who Hits Back tour of the United States, where the band shared the stage with some of the finest orchestras in America. The lineup features The Who's full live band comprised of guitarist and backup singer Simon Townsend, keyboardist Lauren Gold, second keyboardist Emily Marshall, bassist John Button, drummer Zach Starkey, and backing vocals by Billy Nichols, along with orchestra conductor Keith Levison, lead violinist Katie Jacoby, and lead cellist Audrey Snyder. Performing with The Who and an orchestra has been a long-held ambition for singer Roger Daltrey. As the tour was announced, he said, Having not toured the UK for six years, it's great that at this time of our careers, we have the chance to go to places that are not on the usual touring map, Edinburgh Castle and Derby, as well as other cities across the country that we haven't been to for decades, will make this a very special for me. This opportunity will give the UK Who fans the chance to hear our current show, which, with the addition of an orchestra, takes our music to new heights. Pete Townsend added, Roger initially christened his tour with an orchestra moving on. I love it. It is what both of us want to do. Move on with new music, classic Who music, all performed in new and exciting ways. Taking risk, nothing to lose. I'm really looking forward to bringing this show to the UK. The band have asked fans to add an optional £1 donation onto their ticket price at the point of sale in support of Teenage Cancer Trust. Townsend and Daltrey are long-standing supporters of the charity, with Daltrey acting as a driving force behind Teenage Cancer Trust Royal Abbott Hall concerts since they began in 2000. Tickets are set to go on sale at 10am on Friday, February the 3rd. That article was by Lucy Garcia. This is from The National on Monday the 30th of January 2023. This is from the news section. The headline is UK Passport Price Increase. Last chance to renew before February rise. This article is by Rebecca Carey. 
British passport applications are about to rise in price, so here's how you can renew yours before the increase. From February 2nd, new passport fees will be introduced for all applications, including those who are newly applying or are renewing their passport. The changes were announced on a government website which informed the public that the increase was required to help the Home Office to continue improving its services. Here's everything you need to know about getting your new passport and what the new fees will be. Why is the UK government increasing the passport renewal price? The government's web pages reads, The new fees will help the Home Office move towards a system that meets its costs through those who use it, reducing reliance on funding from general taxation. The government does not make any profit from the cost of passport applications. The fees will also contribute to the cost of processing passport applications, consular support overseas, including for lost or stolen passports, and the cost for processing British citizens at UK borders. When should I renew my passport? You need to renew or replace your passport if it has expired or if you do not have enough time left on it. The amount of time left in your passport changes depending on the country that you are visiting. You can check the entry requirements of the country you want to travel to by visiting the UK Foreign Travel Advice website. If you still have a European Union or Burgundy passport, you do not need to replace the passport as long as it is valid for travel. It's important to note there are different rules for when you have had your passport lost, stolen or damaged. How to replace a lost, stolen or damaged passport? Damaged passports. The UK government says if your passport has more than reasonable wear and tear, you must replace it because you may not be allowed to travel with it. Lost or stolen. If your passport is lost or stolen, you need to cancel it as quickly as possible. The UK government advises this is to reduce the risk of anyone else using your passport or your identity. Before February 2nd, it costs £75.50 to renew or replace your passport if you apply online, or £85 if you fill in a paper form. How long does it take to get a British passport? The government advises that you allow up to 10 weeks for your new passport, but this can vary depending on where you're applying from, for example. You can book online or with a paper form from the post office for the standard service. However, you can also use the online premium and fast track service for an increased fee. Additionally, if you need a passport for urgent travel under compassionate circumstances, you can contact the passport advice line. How much will UK passport prices be from February 2023? The cost of a standard online application for an adult made within the UK will jump from £75.50 to £82.50. Meanwhile, the fee for a child's passport under the same conditions will rise to £53.50 from £49. The change will also affect postal applications, which will increase from £85 to £93 for adults and £58.50 to £64 for children. It is the first time in five years that the cost of applying for a passport has increased, the Home Office said. That article was by Rebecca Carey. This is from The National on Monday the 30th of January 2023. This is from the news section. The headline is Walker dies after falling on Scottish mountain Benmore. This article is by Craig Megan. A walker has died after falling on a Monroe, mountain rescuers have said. Cullen Mountain Rescue Team, MRT, were called to the scene on Benmore where they were training on Saturday afternoon. A Coast Guard rescue helicopter also went to the scene that helped transport team members and equipment as far up the hill as they could given the weather conditions and cloud level. Mountain rescuers located the casualty and began administering immediate first aid for serious injuries, 
However, the person was pronounced dead. Colin MRT said, Unfortunately, despite the best efforts of our members on the scene, the casualty sadly was pronounced dead on the hill. The team thereafter evacuated the casualty off the hill. Our thoughts are very much with the family and friends of the individual, and we offer them our sincerest condolences. Equally, our thoughts are with the team members who were involved and assisted with this tragic incident. Ben Moore is located on the Loch Lomond and Trossachs National Park. That article was by Craig Megan. This is from The National. On Monday the 30th of January 2023, this is from the news section. The headline is, Western Isles, ex-Daily Record journalist to contest SNP stronghold. The article is by Hamish Morrison. The Daily Record former Westminster editor is reportedly set to become a Labour candidate for the next general election. Torquil Crichton is likely to contest the Western Isles seat, the Daily Record reports. A journalist who was brought up on the Isle of Lewis is reportedly hoping to retake the seat for Labour. It has been held for the SNP by Angus McNeil since 2005. Crichton worked as the Daily Record's man in London for 12 years before leaving the paper in 2022. The paper reported his selection opponent had dropped out of the race, leaving the path clear for him to secure the party's nomination. A vote of local members will go ahead this week, the paper said. The Western Isles is the UK's smallest constituency by population made up of just 20,887 voters. Prior to firmly switching to the SNP, it had been in a Labour seat for nearly 20 years. The article was by Hamish Morrison. From The National, Monday the 30th of January 2023. From the comment section... Latest round of Tory sleaze is tip of the iceberg in broken Britain by George Caravan. So farewell Natim Sahawi and roll on the general election. Yet the sad truth is that whoever wins and given mounting evidence of Rishi Sunat's cack-handedness it will be Labour. Nothing much is going to change. For it is obvious that neither major UK party has any clue how to address Britain's dire poor productivity or lack of economic competitiveness. And, without a major improvement in both, growth will remain sluggish, incomes will remain flat, and the Treasury will lack the wherewithal to fund the NHS or anything else. Last week, just as the Zahawi row was cranking up, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt assembled an obliging group of business executives from Meta, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple and Google to announce his latest blueprint to boost growth and productivity. Hunt used the occasion to berate those critics who do Britain down. Talk of declinism about Britain is just wrong, he told his audience. He seemed oblivious to the irony that if the British economy was not in dire straits, then he would not need a plan to boost growth in the first place. Never mind the fact that this peculiar, hand-picked audience knows only too well that the UK is nowhere, is nowhere when it comes to participation in the global high-tech elite. Hunt finished his bizarre preparation with a plea. I want you to help turn the UK into the world's next Silicon Valley. Aside from Hunt's wobbly grasp of geography, can an island be a valley? He offered no incentives to back up this request, merely reminding the audience that the government is broke and wouldn't be cutting taxes anytime soon. The reaction of the business community to Hunt's much-trumpeted initiative was underwhelming to say the least. The head of the British Chamber of Commerce dismissed the speech as having very little meat. 
the Federation of Small Businesses was even more sardonic about Hunt's offering. We hope he follows today's bark with a bite. In other words, there's no concrete growth plan, just more empty slogans. The same goes for Labour. It is worth reminding ourselves just how dire the UK economy actually is. According to the latest data from the Office of National Statistics, comparing productivity across the G7 big industrial nations, output per worker is higher in every country compared to the UK, bar Japan where we lack comparative figures. In the US, output per worker is a staggering 50% higher, while the UK lags the G7 average by 16%. Worse still, the productivity gap is widening. UK productivity growth has practically flatlined since the banking crisis of 2008. The latest stats, published last week, show productivity in the third quarter of 2022 was barely higher than in the year before the start of the Covid pandemic. This is significant because it was thought that the big changes in work practices that were forced by the lockdown would have boosted productivity somewhat. They haven't. So what is the root cause of Britain's desperately poor productivity and what can be done about it? The usual suspects include notoriously low UK spending and capital investment, productivity is directly tied to the quality of your machinery, and the British obsession with owning property over actually making things. Yet there is a deeper malaise, and this brings us to the Zahawi affair. Quite simply, British commercial life is deeply corrupt. Our business and financial elite prefer fiddling to hard entrepreneurial graft. On the usual global indices of business corruption, for instance, which are published by the Transparency International NGO, the UK seems to rank quite high. It comes in at number 11 in the world in 2021, but such rankings refer only to cases of simple personal bribery. The corruption of the British economic and business life takes place at a deeper institutional and cultural level. Since the days of Thatcher, business and banking life has become characterised by a cult of getting rich through financial wheeling and dealing, rather than patient investment, investment in manufacturing. In fact, much is what of left of British industry has been flogged off to foreigners, while our business class makes money trading bits of paper or parcels of land. Consider the latest British economic debacle, the collapse of Brit- British Volt, the flagship £3.8 billion project to establish a UK facility to manufacture batteries for electric vehicles, located on a 93-hectare site in Northumberland. The state-supported British Volt has gone barely up without ever producing a single battery. Yet its management happily spent shareholders' cash on private jets and expensive sponsorship of motor racing events. It turns out British Volt had failed to secure a single advanced customer order, has no working technology, and is in in an already crowded market. So why build a humongous factory when you have nothing to sell and no one to sell to? Because the bozos in charge were in love with show and pretense, with making deals rather than making things. And it suited the Tory government to promote this fiction as part of its bogus levelling up agenda. The contemporary British economy is based on financial gambling. The rot set in with Thatcher, who sold off state enterprises for a song to fund tax cuts, hardly a sustainable strategy. The spivs and gamblers who bought these assets were not interested in the long term. They were more concerned with turning a fast buck on a trade. Welcome to the Dell Boy economy we now live in. Productivity is the last thing they care about. 
At the centre of this network of incompetence and irresponsibility are the banks and investment funds, also known as financial gambling houses. Nobody went to jail when the British banks nearly brought down the global financial system and economy in 2008. Instead, the banks set about putting tens of thousands of viable small companies into receivership and sold off the assets cheaply to restore bank profits. This act of economic vandalism goes a long way to explain the failure of productivity to grow since then. The latest round of Tory sleaze is merely the tip of the iceberg. Britain is the world's biggest offshore tax haven and a centre for money laundering. Since 2008, city banks have paid some £25 billion in fines for misconduct, yet no banker has served time. Instead, the banks recoup the fines by charging customers more. And now Rishi Sunak, a former banker, plans to remove many of the controls imposed on the banks in the wake of the financial crisis. The fox is definitely inside the henhouse. We won't improve productivity unless we eradicate Britain's Dale Boy business culture. Unfortunately, that can't be done without dismantling the political state that created and protects that culture. Sacrificing the odd culprit politician now and again merely serves to protect the others. We need written branch reform, and that requires destroying the corrupt British state as it exists today. We can start that process here in Scotland by withdrawing our allegiance to the doomed decaying, corrupt entity that is the so-called United Kingdom. The outcome of the next general election will change nothing fundamental about Britain's economic mess, but it could be the start of Scotland's escape road. And that was a comment piece by George Caravan. From the National, Tuesday the 31st of January 2023, from the News Section. Foreign Secretary refuses to commit to release of Jagtar Singh Johal by Steph Braun. Foreign Secretary James Cleverley has refused to commit to seeking the release of Scott Jagtar Singh Johal from an Indian prison in what his family say is a backward step in the fight for his freedom. Johal, an active blogger and Sikh human rights campaigner, was in Punjab in northern India in 2017 when his family say he was arrested and bundled into an unmarked car. He says he was then tortured for days, included with electrocution, and has remained in detention since then. In May, he was formally charged with conspiracy to commit murder and being a member of a terrorist gang, and now faces the death penalty. The charges rely on his forced confession under torture and are not supported by credible evidence, say human rights group Reprieve and Redress. On Monday morning, Johal's brother Gurpreet and his constituency MP Martin Doherty Hughes met with Cleverly for the first time in the hope he would pledge to help secure the release of Johal and insist he has been arbitrarily detained, but neither happened. Former Prime Minister Boris Johnson acknowledged there was no legal base for Johal's detention, reflecting the findings of a panel of UN legal experts. But former Foreign Secretary Liz Trust and Cleverly have never echoed this. Gurpreet said he was disappointed by the meeting, which he insisted was full of empty words. He said, I'm grateful to the Foreign Secretary for meeting us, but so disappointed in what he had to say. He talked about Jack Tyre's best interest, but won't seek his release, won't even acknowledge that there is no legal basis for his imprisonment. It is a slap in the face to hear him talk about the Indian justice system, 
and what the UK government can do to ensure that Jagtar receives a fair trial. Jagtar has been in prison for five years already, based on a confession he signed after being tortured, and his trial on these trumped-up charges has barely begun. As I told Mr Cleverly, trials brought by India's National Investigation Agency can drag on for decades. What we need from the Foreign Secretary is decisive action. What we got is more empty words. In November, a demonstration was held outside Downing Street to mark five years since Trihal, known as Jaggi, was unlawfully detained. It was attended by hundreds of people from all over the UK, including Nazazin Zakhari Ratcliffe, who was detained in Iran for six years after being accused of plotting to overthrow the government. There followed an incident in August when a reprieve accused British intelligence agencies MI5 and MI6 of providing a tip-off that ultimately led to the arrest of Johal, who was originally from Dumbarton. Reprieve showed documentation to the BBC which says there is strong evidence Johal's arrest came from a tip-off from British intelligence. Doherty Hughes said at the time the allegations risk destroying whatever confidence Britain's Sikh and other minority populations had in the security services. The West Dunbartonshire MP used a general debate at Westminster early this month to call for Jahal's immediate release, stating that the legal case around his arbitrary detention is now beyond doubt. Following the meeting with Cleverly, Doherty Hughes said, I appreciated the Foreign Secretary taking the time, allowing myself and Gurpreet the opportunity to put our case robustly and strongly. However, I am disappointed to say that, despite listening to compelling evidence built on the unambiguous feelings of the UN Working Group, we are no closer to having the UK government call for Jagtar's release. After five years, with Jagtar being tortured into making a false confession and the now unavoidable evidence of arbitrary detention, the UK government cannot move on from the softly-softly approach which shows no signs of yielding results. Following Johal's detention, it is said he was given electric shocks, his limbs were forced into painful positions, he suffered sleep deprivation and death threats, including threats of being burnt alive, and he was forced to sign blank sheets of paper. Despite the seriousness of the allegations and repeated requests from his lawyers, India has never provided him with an independent medical examination and has taken no steps to investigate the serious allegations of torture as far as redress and reprieve are aware. Reprieve's Director of Advocacy, Dan Dolan, said, By failing to seek Jagtar's release, the UK government is effectively condemning him to indefinite arbitrary detention in India. It looks awfully like the Foreign Secretary is prioritising narrow political considerations over the life of a young British man facing a death sentence overseas for blogging about human rights abuses. That article was by Steph Brown from The National, Tuesday the 31st of January 2023, from the news section. Green Councillor cleared over Alaba transphobia comments by Watchdog. By Drew Sanderlands. No action will be taken against a Glasgow councillor over Twitter posts which claimed the Alaba party is, quotes, obsessed with transphobia, close quotes. Complaints about comments made by Councillor Blair Anderson of Glasgow's Green Party were sent to the Standards Commission in July last year. 
Anderson had tweeted about a planned Alaba party event at the Record Factory on Byers Road, which was later cancelled by the venue and held elsewhere. He said the bar was welcoming the business of a party obsessed with transphobia and led by a man with so many allegations of sexual harassment against him, referring to Alex Salmond, who was cleared of sexual assault charges in March 2020. After the event was cancelled, the councillor added, bigotry has consequences and transphobia is unacceptable wherever it goes. Following an investigation, the Ethical Standards Commissioner recommended that Anderson's conduct had not breached the councillor's code of conduct. He reported to the Standards Commission, which decided against asking for further investigation or holding a hearing. The Commissioner said, even if Anderson's conduct had been found to be disrespectful or courteous, it was highly likely he would be protected by freedom of expression. The Ethical Standards Commissioner's report found the Alaba Party's position on transgender rights was both publicly known and was one it was entitled to hold, and opposition to gender recognition reform should not automatically be associated with an obsession with transphobia or, more generally, bigotry. He believed the general connection between the Alba Party and transphobia was not disrespectful, and although it would have been more accurate for Anderson to have made it clear the Alba Party's leader had been cleared of allegations of sexual misconduct, the statement had a basis in fact. The Commissioner did state the comment was unnecessary and out of date, but added Anderson had not identified the Alba Party's leader by name. Having renew, reviewed the evidence, the Standards Commission's view was the people reading the tweets could arguably be said to have inferred that the Alaba party was both transphobic and bigoted. Such inferences without basis could potentially, on the face of it, be regarded disrespectful, it added. However, a hearing would need to consider the respondent's right of freedom to expression under Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights. The Commission believed that Anderson was likely to have protection as the tweet concerned a matter of public and political interest being the views of another political party and the conduct of its leader. In this case, the Standards Commission considered that any inferences made by the respondent about the Alaba party being transphobic and bigoted would amount to value judgments, its report added. The Standards Commission accepted, given the media coverage and public debate on the issue of transphobia, and opposition to gender recognition reform, that such value judgments were likely to have been made in good faith, regardless of whether they were accurate or not. The Commission found the Alaba Party's leader was entirely and easily identifiable, but the comment was simply a statement of fact on a matter that was already in the public domain. Anderson declined to comment on the ruling. That article was by Drew Sanderlin. From the National, Tuesday the 31st of January 2023, from the news section. Guy Verhofstadt. Maybe without Brexit there would be no Ukrainian war. By Zander Eliads. Russia may never have invaded Ukraine if Britain had not left the EU, the European Parliament's former Brexit coordinator has said. Guy Verhofstadt, a senior MEP and former Belgian Prime Minister, told LBC on Tuesday that if Europe had been stronger and more united, then Vladimir Putin may not have been emboldened enough to launch the military invasion. 
Verhofstadt, also a former candidate for president of the European Commission, said, This war, this brutal invasion, has started with Putin and Russia. It has nothing to do with the extension of NATO or the European Union. It's really an attempt by Putin to restore the old Soviet Union. The only difference is the Communist Party is replaced by his cronies. A united Europe, certainly on defence matters, would make an enormous difference. I think maybe without Brexit there would be no invasion. I don't know, but I think he would see a far stronger and united Europe on the other side. The Belgian politician said that Putin would not start a nuclear war, but warned that if Russia was victorious in Ukraine, then it would be the start of World War III. He said, if he is winning this war in Ukraine, it will be the beginning of World War III, like some people are saying. The next attack will be against the Baltic states. It could be against Poland, could be against another Central or Eastern European country. We have to avoid it. The best way to avoid World War III is Ukraine wins this battle in 2023. Last year, Verhofstadt was among the voices who condemned then Prime Minister Boris Johnson for comparing Brexit to Ukrainians' fight for freedom from Russia. Johnson sparked outrage after using a speech to the Tory Spring Conference in Blackpool to say that, quotes, the instinct of the people of this country, like the people of Ukraine, is to choose freedom, close votes with the Brexit vote a famous recent example. Verhofstadt called the comparison insane, while former European Council President Donald Tusk said Johnson's words offend Ukrainians, the British, and common sense. This article was by Zander Eliades. From the National, Wednesday, the 1st of February, 2023. News. Gordon Brown to head the Glasgow to call for closer ties between Scotland and London. By Xander Elliard's Politico reporter. Gordon Brown will head the Glasgow next week to launch a new report calling for closer ties between Scotland and the rest of the UK. Brown think tank Our Scottish Future will say that Scotland should be better connected in order to use the financial muscle of London, Oxford and Cambridge in order to improve business innovation. Our Scottish Futures Engine of the North report also recommends setting up new local innovation forums, which bring together academics and businesses to come up with ideas to boost productivity. Responding to the report, SNP MSP Kenneth Gibson said Scotland needed the full powers of a normal independent country to drive economic growth. He said this report is right to highlight Scotland's huge economic strengths and also to point to the success of similar-sized European countries like Denmark. What Scotland needs to match that success is the full powers of a normal, independent country. Gibson went on. This report is also completely silent on the huge damage being done to Scotland by the Tory Brexit we rejected, the evidence of which is mounting by the day. Gordon Brown and Scottish Labour are part of the shameful conspiracy of silence between the Westminster parties on the damage being done by Brexit, something that only independence can help to reverse. The Our Scottish Future report notes that some regions of Scotland far outperform others in economic productivity. It also says there are fewer new businesses being created each year per head of population than every region in England except the North East. The paper is written by engineers Chris Bond and Will Sutton, who have experience in the offshore industry 
and OSF Research Director Jamie Gollings. The report's authors conclude Scotland has one of the strongest sets of innovation enablers in the UK. Scotland would be expected to be a real leader in driving innovation in the UK. What's going wrong? The ingredients are there, but the meal is disappointing. The answer is the lack of a good recipe. Among its recommendations, the report argues that Scotland should connect up more closely with the rest of the UK to leverage the financial muscle of London, as well as Oxford and Cambridge. It proposes innovation forums that would identify projects to improve productivity, with levelling up money being used to fund the initial phases. Brown will speak at a conference in Glasgow on Friday, February the 10th, where the report will be presented. That article was by Xander Elliards. From the National, Wednesday the 1st of February 2023, from the comments section. Greens refused to cross Scottish Parliament picket line amid the strike. By Laura Pollock, multimedia journalist. Only one political party is confirmed to be showing solidarity with the tens of thousands of civil servants taking industrial action today, which includes parliamentary staff. Some 100,000 members of the Public and Commercial Services Union across 123 employers will be taking part in the nationwide strikes. This will impact government ministries, museums, driving test centres, ports and airports. The industrial action will coincide with UK-wide right-to-strike rallies in response to the UK government's anti-strike bill. The action is thought to be the biggest day of coordinated strikes for over a decade. Each of the parties elected to Hollywood were approached for comment on whether they would cross virtual or physical picket lines. Picket lines will be at three entrances of the Scottish Parliament from 8am to 11am. Scottish Green MSPs and staff will refuse to cross the picket lines and will not be participating in any parliamentary business. They also intend to join PCS protests to further demonstrate their support. SNP, Labour Conservative and Liberal Democrat MSPs will all carry on with business as usual. Scottish Green MSP Maggie Chapman said, The Scottish Greens stand firmly with striking workers. We will not cross any virtual or physical picket lines and hope that MSPs from all parties will join us in that. With the Tories introducing a range of new and repressive anti-trade union legislation, it is more vital than ever that we stand in unity and solidarity. So many of our existing rights have been won by working people coming together and taking action, whether it is minimum wage, paid holidays or weekends. All of these rights have been hard fought and won by organised union workers. Trade unions have done so much for every single one of us, which is why we must support them. The Liberal Democrats press team said their MSPs will be taking part in business as usual. A Scottish Conservative spokesperson said we respect the decision by Scottish Parliament workers to go on strike, but equally hope that the resolution can urgently be found to avoid future disruptive industrial action. There is a duty for everyone involved to get back around the table as soon as possible to find a positive solution to this dispute. However, constituents rightly expect our MSPs to represent them in important parliamentary business and holding the SNP Green Government to account and we will be in attendance on Wednesday. An SNP spokesperson said, while the SNP recognises and respects the right to strike, 
the business of government and parliament will continue as normal. Scottish Labour did not respond to our request for comment last week. The Herald reported, Labour MSPs intend to cross only picket lines for urgent or serious business and only with the agreement of trade unions. It is understood that an important health issue would warrant MSPs to inquire with the Public and Commercial Services Union if they could cross the picket line. However, this has not yet been confirmed. Labour previously failed in an attempt to suspend Wednesday's parliamentary business and move items for discussion to Tuesday or Thursday. In an attempt to move parliamentary business, Labour MSP Neil Bibby said, in light of that industrial action, we propose to move parliamentary business next Wednesday. That business can easily be done on different days, and I'm sure that there is a lot of members that can work on in their constituencies and regions, including engaging with trade unions. That is the course of action being taken by the Welsh Parliament, as proposed by its business committees and agreed by all parties, with the exception of the Welsh Conservatives. We should do the same here. Portfolio questions on the Constitution, external affairs, culture and justice are all set to take place during the industrial action at Holyrood. Holyrood also announced that the building will be closed to all those who do not have a security pass. MSPs who do cross the picket lines will sit in the main chamber and some committee meetings will take place virtually. The Scottish Parliamentary Corporate Body, which was responsible for the administration of Parliament, said it's committed to ensuring that parliamentary business can continue that day. That article was by Laura Pollock. From the National, Wednesday the 1st of February 2023, breaking news. Scott School closed its bomb squad called out over incident by Hamish Morrison, political reporter. Bomb disposal experts have been called out after an unexploded ordnance device was found near a school. Police have urged people to stay away from the area around Invergordon Academy and said that the school will be closed until the incident is over. Roads around the area in the Highland Town have been cordoned off following the discovery on Tuesday night. Part of the road between the junctions of Gordon Terrace and Academy Road is shut and Davison Drive is closed to vehicles and pedestrians. A Police Scotland spokeswoman said emergency services are in attendance at Castle Terrace in Bergordon after an unexploded ordnance was found. A cordon has been put in place and explosive ordnance disposal has been contacted. That article was by Hamish Morrison. From the National, Wednesday the 1st of February 2023. News section. How will UK anti-strike law impact Scottish workers and devolution? By Abby Garton Crosby, multimedia political reporter. The UK government's draconian anti-strike law has passed its first hurdle and now it's on its way to the House of Lords. But what does it mean for Scottish workers in devolution? Rose Foyer, General Secretary of the Scottish Trade Union Congress spoke to the National and gave her assessment of the legislation and what impact it will have on trade unions' ability to organise if it becomes law. She raised concerns over the repercussions the strikes bill will have for devolution and called on the Scottish Government to guarantee they will resist the legislation at all costs. She raised the possibility the bill could be faced with a legal challenge when or if it becomes law. So what does the anti-strike bill do? 
The legislation allows UK ministers to set minimum service levels within certain sectors, health, education, fire and rescue, border force and nuclear decommissioning. However, the bill itself does not set out what exactly those minimum levels are, something FOIA described as a serious issue. She said, the minimum standards that are required across different areas are best determined by local management and their employees. These things are best determined on the ground. What the bill is actually going to do is give an incredible amount of power to Grant Shapps, the Secretary of State, who's basically going to be able to determine minimum level service, service levels across a whole range of public services. Foyer added that it was debatable whether the service areas picked by the UK government count as emergency, but added that Shapps will be the one to determine the minimum service levels, not the employers or the workforce. We could end up with a situation where the minimum standard is actually higher than the standard of service on a daily basis, Foyer added. As we know, after 10 years of Tory austerity, attacking our public services, the real people that should be taking a long look at themselves in terms of maintaining minimum standards are this Tory government. Not the hard-working people who work in these services and who as well as trying to make sure that they get a decent level of paying conditions are also actually in many cases striking and campaigning for more sustainable resources so they can do their job properly within those services. So what impact will the anti-strike bill have for workers in Scotland? Shaps will effectively be able to name who is allowed to take strike action and who isn't, Foyer said. She added, there's a real, real slap in the face for workers who were on the front line during the pandemic, who put themselves and their families at risk to give us key essential public services. These workers are now being told that they may be sacked for taking lawful industrial action. That is a situation that we can countenance and we're going to fight this attack on workers' rights every single step of the way. What it means for Scotland is that the Secretary of State, Grant Shapps, down in the UK government is going to determine, over and above the heads of Scottish ministers, standard levels in devolved areas like health, areas of local government and education. These areas and the service that's given within them should be, as is our devolution settlement, they should be determined by Scottish ministers and the Scottish government. What consequences does this legislation have for Scottish devolution? Since Brexit, numerous pieces of legislation have started to undermine devolution, with the anti-strikes bill the latest on the list Foyer explained. I would see this as part of a pattern. I think there's a complete disregard for our, by our current UK government, Section 35, that we saw that used for the first time the other week We've seen a whole range of things around contracting and procurement. These are the sort of things that really are starting to eat into the devolution settlement. And I would like to see that being stood against and fought back against. The STUC boss says she would be seeking guarantees from Scottish government. They, they will do everything within their power to resist and not implement this draconian legislation. She said it goes against everything that we're trying to achieve in terms of becoming a fair work world leader by 2025, which is their stated aim. They also have an aim to achieve more collective bargaining coverage here in Scotland, for example, which is really undermined by pieces of legislation like this. 
and regardless of whether employment law is devolved or not at the moment, as I said before, when you're talking about areas of service delivery, they are devolved. Then our view, as you know, and I'm sure the Scottish Government will agree with us, that it's really for Scottish ministers to determine service standards across areas like health, education and other areas that are devolved to Scotland. Foyer also said the STUC is calling for a manifesto commitment from Labour ahead of the next general election to devolve employment law to the Scottish Parliament. Northern Ireland, where employment law is devolved, hadn't had to deal with any of this, Foyer added. So how will trade unions and the right to strike be affected? Foyer also set out how details of the bill, which allows employers to give a work notice to a trade union in relation to a strike could stifle unions' abilities to organise industrial action. The legislation allows employers to name individual staff who must attend work on planned strike dates. She explained there are real dangers of potential victimisation of trade union members, activists and reps. If you're getting down to producing a list of named individuals in that manner, who can and who can't participate, you can see how this could be used tactically in the wrong hands to undermine strike action if key activists were being told that they're the ones that have to be in work. It takes a lot of power away from trade unions on the ground. All that's going to do is to make disputes even longer, even more protracted, add an extra layer of an argument to a dispute and actually makes it harder for workers and management to come together to resolve disputes. Foyer added that workers and management should be talking to each other about the substantive issues causing the strike, not what is and isn't allowed under the Tory bill. Does the STUC share concerns that the legislation will rip up protections against unfair dismissal? Foyer said the STUC absolutely shares concerns with the Labour Party that the legislation will allow employers to sack staff and says ultimately the bill is bad for ordinary working people. She said anything that a government does that takes away the power or potential power of a group of workers to negotiate with an employer is bad for terms and conditions of employment more widely. And then any measure that makes it more frightening to take industrial action or more likely that you may not have a strong employment rates or maybe sacked on something like that. All of these things are just added and designed frankly to create that fear factor that the government wants to create. Ultimately, we need ordinary working people to come together and stand up against this and say, enough is enough. The key solution we need is for people to vote the Tories out of power at the earliest possible opportunity. Will the bill face a legal challenge if it becomes law and what comes next? Trade unions are already planning to challenge the legislation if it becomes law with concerns that the move may be illegal because it would contravene workers' human rights, Foyer said. The UK-wide TUC and affiliates down south are working on putting a case together. She explained that because we believe that this is quite possibly illegal, what we're attempting to do here because it contravenes workers' human rights. That aside, I think workers will challenge us by just continuing to take action where action is necessary. Everything they've thrown at us so far, we've overcome as a movement. This is a government that has an ideology. It's been trying to destroy unions for decades and workers' rights 
because it doesn't want people to have the ability to come together and say no and demand better. Foyer noted that the Tories are trying to legislate away the right to strike and the right to protest and said the message should be that working people are not slaves of the Tory government. We will fight back no matter what conditions they try and put in our path, no matter what obstacles they throw at us, she added. Will the bill actually stop workers from striking? Despite the anti-strike bill's intention to stop the wave of industrial action across the UK, as many sectors are set to walk out of repaying conditions, Foyer is adamant it won't stop workers from exercising their rights. I think this bill is just going to galvanise and provoke ordinary working people, she said. We're at a point where we cannot be pushed any further. People are struggling to feed their families. They are struggling to heat their houses. We don't have an economy that works for workers. And meanwhile, we see chancellors that are not paying their tax bills properly. We see a billionaire sitting in the prime minister's seat. These people are not in touch with reality or ordinary working people. They're sucking the profits out of our society and public services. Literally, we're watching the billionaire and the boss class offshoring the profits that this country is making when they should be reinvested for the good of everyone in our economy. Foyer said there needs to be a radical rethink about how to build a fair economy for workers. The only way we're going to secure that is by being proactive, making sure we get rid of this Tory government and then we demand better from every other contender. The STC are due to hold a rally in Glasgow on Wednesday as part of a coordinated bid to protect the right to strike across the UK and will feature speakers including SNP Westminster Group Leader Stephen Flynn. This article was by Abby Garton Crosby. From the National, Thursday the 2nd of February 2023. From the comment section, Alan Smith. The lights are on, we just need to find our way back. By columnist Alan Smith. Amidst the chaos that is 21st century politics across these aisles, it can be easy to lose perspective or to forget that positions must be reasserted from time to time to those out with our political bob- bubbles. Not a single local authority area in Scotland voted to leave the European Union in 2016, yet Scotland was dragged out regardless. Two of the four nations in the United Kingdom, Scotland and Northern Ireland, voted to remain, England and Wales to leave. In mainstream European politics, this would have necessitated a compromise between differing factions, Instead, one side was shut out, shut down, and told to shut up. It can be draining for those on all sides of our constitutional woes to rehearse the same points again and again. But but some facts are timeless and worth repeating for the record because their opponents are desperate for us to forget. Often we look to the past for comfort and where it all went wrong, but I firmly believe if Scotland is to regain our place in our European family of nations, then it's the future we must now focus our attention and efforts. I was very proud to attend the march and rally on Tuesday evening, marking the third anniversary of Scotland's forced departure from the EU. Hundreds of activists turned out in a bitterly cold January night. Yet, for a crowd who had their rights as European citizens stripped, it was a lively atmosphere, with laughter and frustration demonstrated in equal measure. The movement for Scotland's return to Europe, and for Scotland to regain our independence, are deeply intertwined. Both campaigning goals ultimately depend on progress in the other, 
now that Labour is fully committed to a project once confined to the Tory fringes. Both campaigns have been mutually synonymous with the rejection of nostalgia and the nasty strains of exceptionalism on populism we've seen take root in other places across the UK. Instead, they are internationalists to their very bones. Scotland wants to rejoin the biggest partnership for peace, democracy and freedom history has ever known, and if the EU didn't already exist, then something like it would be forced from necessity, and Scotland would want in from the get-go. Tuesday's event, organised by the fantastic Leslie Riddick and Time for Scotland, was important for many reasons, but primarily it challenged the growing outrage and grit expressed by so many Scots at the current state of democracy in the UK. The economic damage caused by leaving the EU has been enormous, up to £100 billion a year according to fresh estimates. Yet, the social and political forces it has unleashed are profound, and history will look back in this period in collective disbelief. The UK is heading to a dark place, as draconian laws curtailing the right to strike and protest ultimately sail past genuine legislative scrutiny. Scotland's Parliament is increasingly under threat, our powers undermined and democracy norms ignored. You'd be forgiven for some despair. And yet, more and more Scots are growing disillusioned with Messmaster's Circus Act. The joke got old long ago, and as more and more households and businesses suffer from the UK government's chronic, inherent inability to handle fires on multiple fronts, Scots are turning to independence in Europe as the answer. A yes vote in 2014 was seen by some as a gamble, and many felt the risk of independence too great. Some voters I've spoken to felt they couldn't afford independence on a personal level, their lives were stable and they were reluctant to upset the apple cart. Now, almost 10 years on from the first independence referendum, the tables truly have turned. Sticking with the status quo is not an option, and increasingly it is sticking with the UK which presents the most risk and instability for industry and communities. Independence is not a magic wand. Scotland faces deep structural and demographic challenges, just like any other developed economy. Yet we've got what it takes, the natural wealth and resources, we're energy rich, we're surrounded by allied nations and we've got the European Union on our doorsteps. Scotland is already an advanced Western democracy. We just need to complete our journey to full statehood and rejoin the international community and European Union in our own right. It will take time, there will be bumps along the road, but the alternative is stagnation and decline in a rapidly deteriorating UK. Tuesday's rally theme was Lights On, a homage to the recurring motive in Scotland's journey back to the EU. In my final speech in Strasbourg as one of Scotland's MEPs, I urge our friends and allies to leave a light on so that we may find our way home. Those lights are on, those doors are open, and our partners are waiting for us. And that was a comment piece by Alan Smith. British Wireless for the Blind and Q and Review launched Talking Newspaper Alexa Skill. The National Sight Loss Charity British Wireless for the Blind Fund, BWBF, launched its Talking Newspaper Alexa Skill in June 2021, following successful beta testing during lockdown. The life-changing new skill was made possible thanks to a Scottish Government and National Lottery Community Fund Community Recovery Grant of £50,485, secured by Cune Review Recording Service in partnership with BWBF. Cune Review Print Speaking to the Blind is a voluntary service which transcribes print magazines and newspapers into audio format. The Talking Newspaper skill brings together all Cune Review titles, 
Scottish newspapers and magazines, as well as a range of other newspapers and magazines across the UK, in an accessible format for anyone who is visually or reading impaired. Those using the Alexa skill can ask for any talking newspaper or talking magazine simply by saying the name used on the BWBF smartphone app. BWBF is also working to expand the functionality of the skill to include geographies and regions to make it easier to find desired titles and is actively soliciting feedback from users following months of beta testing. In June 2021, the technology project manager David Beard said, Talking newspapers and magazines really are a lifeline for those who are visually or reading impaired. We've been working on this skill since January with q and Review and beta testers and are delighted to be in a position to now officially launch with Alexa Devices, the most popular voice assistant in the UK. This skill not only modernises the talking newspaper and magazine format, which is vitally important, but also makes them much more accessible to a much wider range of people. We hope to continue developing this skill and are gathering feedback from users to inform future updates. To find out more, visit www.printtoaudio.co.uk From the National When to the 1st of February 2023 From the comment section Time to fight for the golden thread of Scottish sovereignty By Tasmina Ahmed Sheik Today, Neil Hanvey will rise in the House of Commons to propose the Scottish Sovereignty Bill. In doing so, he will join a long and honourable tradition of moving Scotland bills in the House of Commons. But the Hanvey Bill has a vital difference from the Federal, Home Rule or Devolution Bills of the past. Hanvey's Bill proposes that Westminster recognise Scottish sovereignty by transferring to the Scottish Parliament the legislative power to exercise it, as he used to say in Ireland, the freedom to obtain freedom. The legislative establishment of a Scottish Parliament is sometimes seen as a relatively new political adventure, stemmed in the 1970s and realised 20 years later. In fact, as far back as in the 19th century, home rule agitation was brought up on the floor of the House of Commons, and, indeed, in two out of the seven occasions, 1894 and 1895, supportive resolutions were passed. With the Liberal government set on introducing Irish home rule, the Parallel Government of Scotland Bill was moved into the House of Commons in 1913 and then backed by 204 votes to 159. Only the outbreak of the First World War stopped its implementation or we could well have secured at least a Home Rule Parliament more than a century ago. Ireland went its own way and the established British parties lost interest in the Scottish question with the torch kept burning by the radical independent Labour Party and the newly formed SNP. When the SNP finally surged forward in the 1970s, the Labour Party moved to protect their political base and rediscovered the historic commitment to a Scottish Assembly in the filing cabinets of Keir Hardley Hall. The rest is much more recent history and events with which the national readers will be familiar. Suffice it to say that when the Scottish Parliament was established by a referendum of the Scottish people 25 years ago, it was assumed that one way or another the future of Scotland would be determined in Scotland and by Scotland. However, last year's misadventure of soliciting legal advice from a London court threw everything back into the milking pot. So why, after 150 years of parliamentary effort in Scotland's cause, is Neil Hanvey rising today in the House of Commons? He does so to illustrate a point, as opposed to any expectation of success or even widespread support. It is the proper job of every single National SNP 
on a daily basis to find every procedural mechanism to progress Scotland's cause within the rulebook of the Commons or indeed out with it. Westminster's ongoing denial of Scotland's national rights should be demonstrated at every turn and every opportunity and it should be done in a rock of principle on the national right of self-determination and should certainly not be fought in shaky ground of personal self-identification. Of course, current issues should illustrate the underlying question, but enormous care should be taken that the issues chosen to support the principle and don't impede it. Even where Scottish opinion is decisively on one side, as in the Europe debate, it should be used to advance the cause, not to peddle a hobby horse. For example, it is entirely legitimate and beneficial to point out that Scotland was dragged out of the European Union against her will and that the damage done has resulted in rendering the UK the sick economy of Europe. Thus, last night rallies against Brexit are well justified and beneficial. However, it is sensible to completely conflate a vote for independence in itself with a vote for renewed membership, given the complexity and time required in negotiations to rejoin. I merely point out that membership of the EU's Free Trade Association and the single market commands much greater consensus amongst our people than suggesting automaticity. The arguments for proceeding with a plebiscite election at Holyrood rather than Westminster are overwhelming, as indeed is the case for holding it this year on October the 19th, when the people were promised a vote. The only argument against which I have seen is that if Holyrood used its current powers to amend the Scotland Act to allow the Parliament to be dissolved by a simple majority, then it would be subject to a court challenge or a Westminster override. To which I say, bring it on. The Supreme Court striking down an act of democratic parliament moving to allow a sovereign people a democratic vote is the stuff of which revolutions are made. Meanwhile, the enfeebled government of Rishi Sunak, terrified of the electorate, would be hopelessly exposed trying to thwart a Scottish government which trusted in the people to decide. Both are prospective battles we should welcome because either would be won. For that reason, the likelihood is neither would require to be fought and we would secure our date with destiny this year. The golden thread of Scottish popular sovereignty, stretching through the ages, is the rock on which the national movement has been built and should still stand. When Neil Hanvey stands in the Commons today, he will speak for that tradition and signpost the way to a better democratic future. And that was an opinion piece by Tasmina Ahmed Sheikh. From the National, Thursday the 2nd of February 2023, from the comment section, First Minister's Question Sketch Sarwar paints Sturgeon a Scrooge on Council Budgets by Kirsty Strickland The Scottish Government is currently gathering feedback on a range of proposed electoral reforms, including one which would allow 16 and 17 year olds to become MSPs. It's a dreadful idea. It might sound progressive when you first hear it, but the potential risks can become clear the longer you think about it. It would be a safeguarding nightmare for starters. The young guinea pig who became a first 16-year-old MSP would be subject to a media and social media frenzy. The fact that 16-year-olds can get married and join the army is not a valid argument for allowing them to become MSPs. It's an argument for changing those daft laws too. Anyway, I only mention this because shortly before FMQs got started, I read a quote from SNP MSP George Adam saying 16 and 17-year-old MSPs would change the vibrancy of Holyrood. 
By the time the weekly question and answer session was over, it was clear that we don't need teenage MSPs to make Hollywood more vibrant. A ball with a face drawn on it would have a similar effect. You could replace some backbenchers with a bag of limp carrots, and the standard of the debate would improve tenfold. Anna Sarwar began by asserting that the Scottish Government has been short-changing local council for the last 15 years. In response, Nicola Sturgeon said we're living in times of real financial difficulty and restraint, ain't that the truth, but the upcoming budget, her government is proposing an increase in resources available to local government of over £570 million. That's a real terms increase of £160 million. Look, I'll be honest with you, whenever politicians trade numbers, my eyes start to glaze over a wee bit. I have no idea what £570 million looks like in practice. It sounds like a lot of money, but then again, it must cost roughly that just to whack the heating on for a few hours in those draft deal council buildings. Anna Sarwar paints the Scottish Government as a miserly scrooge, withholding funds from local government. Nicola Sturgeon wants to give the impression that her government is a rotund Santa Claus, throwing millions of pounds in one kilogram tubs of Lorpak towards grateful councils across Scotland. The First Minister finished her answer by offering to listen to any budget ideas that Anna Sarwar had. She said that if he could tell her where he would take cash from elsewhere in the budget to give the local, to local councils, she'd be interested to hear it. Should it be from the National Health Service? Should it be from the police? Should it be from the central government education budget? She asked. The Scottish Labour leader hit back, What the Scottish government wants to ignore is all the waste this government is doing. The vanity project, the money hidden down the sofa for the deal with the Greens. She knows she has taken decisions that have slashed council budgets because, for 15 years, the SNP have underfunded, underfunded councils. The First Minister replied, The problem for Anna Sarwar is it, is it the verdict of the Scottish people that matters, which is why I'm standing here and he is sitting over there. And that was FMQ's sketch by Kirsty Strickland. That concludes this week's edition of the National Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Q and Review and to tell your friends about our service.